This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And today we've got a very special episode. Oh, is it? Well, it's kind of... We realized we had so many updates to do that today we're going to... It's an update episode. It's an update episode. You have the first... Yes, Once. my first one is from episode two. Ooh, that's that was way Todd, back. Yeah, Todd Colehep, the South Carolina serial killer. And another death has been associated with former real estate broker and serial killer, Todd Colehep. Mm. Adam Mason, the boyfriend of Kayla Brown, the woman who was rescued in 2016 after Colehep had imprisoned her for two months in a shipping container, apparently killed himself in February. Oh, Reports said his death was being investigated, but I couldn't find much more on it after those initial February reports. Brown's rescue led to the arrest of Cole Hepp. Her boyfriend at the time, Charlie Carver, was shot by Cole Hepp in front of her before Cole Hepp put her in the shipping container. She was the one they rescued, and they found out after that he had killed, you know, eight other people, at least. In August 2018, Brown was awarded $6.8 million in a lawsuit against Cole Hepp. She sued him for kidnapping and false imprisonment, assault, battery, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and negligence. Cole Hepp also claimed in August of 2018 that he had other victims, but a police search didn't turn any bodies up or any evidence of that. Though I think it's likely he did. I'm sure he did. And aside, I'm reading The Sociopath Next Door by Mm -hmm. Martha Strout. And she says those diagnosed as sociopaths, no matter what their family background or cultural background is, first appear in court at an average age of 14. Wow. As we know from, right, as we know from episode two, and he's the first guy I thought of, Cole Hepp, when he had just turned 15, kidnapped, raped, and threatened to kill a 14-year-old neighbor in Arizona, which he pled guilty to and was sentenced to 15 years in prison, which he served most of, and that was before he moved to South Carolina to live with his mother and went on his killing spree And there. became a very popular real estate agent. Yes, he did. I mean, don't, don't forget <laughs> about his other, you know. So my next one is episode three. All right. Not, and by She's the way, going to do like every We're not going to go through all 66 episodes. <laughs> don't worry. Ayla Reynolds. Aw, Ayla. We last visited this case with an update in early April, so it wasn't that yeah. long ago. Episode 64 when I reported that a Cumberland County Superior Court judge on March 19th granted Trista Reynolds, Ayla's mother, another 60 days to find Justin DiPietro and serve him with a wrongful death suit and the disappearance of Ayla. Justin is Ayla's father. I don't know if I said that. Ayla Reynolds, 20 months old at the time, disappeared from her father's house on Violet Avenue in Waterville, Maine, overnight December 17th to 18th, 2011. No charges have ever been filed, though Ayla's disappearance has been ruled a criminal case, and um, Trista declared her dead in 2017 so she could proceed with the wrongful death suit. Reynolds' lawyer went to great lengths to find a Petro to serve him with the suit, including placing legal notices in newspapers and other stuff. A process server also left a copy of the complaint at DePetro's last known address in Winnetka, California. And I think our episode, we pled with those in Winnetka to... <laughs> Trista Reynolds' stepfather, Jeff Hansen, told the Morning Sentinel in March, Justin obviously knows by now that we're looking for him. Oh, yeah. He has the answers we're looking for. 
Why would he hide from that? Trista's lawyer, William Childs, detailed in an affidavit what had been done to find a Petro, including trying to serve him in Waterville, but his mother said he'd moved two years before, trying to serve him in Winnetka, but they were told he moved out in July, having a PI in Maine look for a current address and social media, criminal records, driver's license, vehicle information, property deeds, hunting and weapons permits, online telephone directories, a California criminal index, medical facilities, post office records. Wow. And other documents. Well, guess who's shown up? Justin DePietro? Yeah, at least virtually. His lawyer, Michael Waxman of Portland, Maine. I would just say Portland, but when people say Portland, they always mean Oregon. Even though Portland, Maine's the original one. I know. Um, but his lawyer, Michael Waxman, filed a response earlier this month by DePietro to the wrongful death suit. He has nothing to do with her disappearance or death, Waxman told the Morning Sentinel, May 15th. And I couldn't find either legal document online, the the suit or the response. Waxman told the Sentinel that it's not true that DiPietro has been uncooperative in the case, something the media has reported because it's what the police have said. He's given many hours of statements to police, Waxman said. He did cooperate. His story has been consistent throughout. He had nothing to do with her disappearance. He obviously struggles with this every single day, as every parent of a child that has been harmed or disappears would naturally feel. That's a that's not that's a my sense. Right. The Bangor Daily News also talked to Waxman and addressed some of the some of the contentions in the suit. When Ayla disappeared, her arm was in a cast. DePietro said at the time she broke it when he was carrying her up wet stairs with groceries in one arm and her in the other, and he slipped and fell. The wrongful death suit alleges DePietro didn't do all he could to help Ayla when she broke her arm when she was in his custody. But Waxman says he wouldn't have allowed his daughter to continue to be in pain. He brought her as soon as he realized he needed to the next day to the hospital. So he must not have realized right away her arm was broken. At the time when... She may have not been able to talk that well. Yeah, she wasn't. couldn't talk that well, but... When it was first reported, that time lapse wasn't reported. Yes, it, it was wasn't. reported he brought her to the hospital. This was right when she disappeared, and that the hospital determined there were no signs of child abuse or anything, which I think we should mention. Police reports state Ayla's blood was found in multiple places in DePietro's home, including her bedroom and DePietro's bedroom. His lawyer says the blood is from Ayla being sick. And this is a quote from the lawyer. Apparently, it's not uncommon that if a child or a person is vomiting repeatedly for some blood to be in the vomit. That's the only explanation I'm aware of. That's the lawyer. He says DePietro also wants answers for what happened, but says there might not be any. The fact he doesn't have the answers she seeks, meaning Trista, doesn't mean he is guilty of causing the child's death, Waxman said. So that's the latest. So the mysterious Justin DePietro has turned up via attorney to answer the wrongful death suit. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what happens. Well, I don't know. if he, I, Whatever. It's just very unlikely, and we've talked about it yes, quite a bit. Yes, you have to listen to episode three. Yes, it's very unlikely that... With our it's, special guest, Ben McKenna. That uh, is such a small house yeah. that somebody would... There were three little kids in the house... Um, I'm just amazed that um, over time, I mean, the the woman he was in a in a relationship with at the time, who was in the house, their their relationship also had, has ended. She also had a little child in the house. I think the only way we're, you're gonna 
they're going to find out anything is, well, number one, if her body's found, which is probably unlikely, but you never know. Well, it wouldn't be a body. Well, I, I don't mean her body, later. her remains. I'm yeah. sorry. Unless she's alive. Yeah. She left to start a new life. Yeah. She was tired of all the bullshit <laughs> in the house. But they, um, I'm, I'm sorry to make light of that, but no. that's always, Too soon. every time someone's disappeared, it, they say that. And it's not, but the, <laughs> the other thing is, uh, but no, if somebody says something, if, if somebody comes forward. Right. And the that other was person. was there that night. The third person in the house was a sister, Alicia, and her baby too. So there were three little kids and three adults in a house, a very small little Cape house. Mm. It's his mother's house, but she wasn't home that night. So what, what, we yep. never know. We know. Now it's me. Ooh. <laughs> Way back in episode seven, we talked about main murderers and the women who loved them. We've often spoke on our show about how many of the murders in Maine are domestic violence crimes. Steve McCausland, who's in many of our episodes, he's a spokesman for the Maine Department of Public Safety, has said that half of the 18 homicides in Maine in 2018 were by domestic, were caused by domestic violence. What a surprise. Francine Garland Stark, executive director of the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, told the Portland Press-Herald that 75% of domestic violence homicides happen after one of the couples says they're going to leave or actually does leave the relationship. In the past few months, there have been two murder-suicides here in Maine. Mm -hmm. The first was in March 2019. On the morning of March 19th, Kenneth Bryant, 48, drove from his home in Livermore Falls, Maine, to 16 Fairview Street in Gardner, Maine where his estranged wife, Autumn, 44, was living in a house owned by Autumn's brother. The couple had been separated since November of 2018. Kenneth shot Autumn twice in the head and left her in the garage of the home, bleeding from head wounds. Then he drove to 74 Poppy Lane in Sydney, Maine, on the shores of Mesolonsky Lake, otherwise known as Snow Pond. Only in Oakland. <laughs> He'd have to listen to our last episode to get yeah, that. Yeah, it's an inside <laughs> joke for people who've listened to our last episode. He took a gas can from his pickup truck and spread the gas around, setting the house on fire. The fire was reported at about 9.30 a.m. The house was engulfed by the time firefighters arrived. Engulfed in flames, I mean. I think you can just say engulfed. That's what the I good did. thing is you didn't say completely engulfed. It was completely engulfed, though. Engulfed means completely. <laughs> I know. At 11.21 a.m., police back in Gardner responded to a report of a gunshot at 16 Fairview Street. They arrived to find Kenneth Bryant dead in his truck in the driveway of the house. Autumn was in the garage, still alive. She was rushed to Maine General Hospital in Augusta, but died shortly after arrival. The house Kenneth had set on fire belonged to Autumn's parents, who were in Florida for the winter. Police were able to link the fire to the shootings quickly because of a three-ring binder in Kenneth's truck with what investigators called, quote, cryptic notes. (laughs) I'm not sure why. They couldn't have been that cryptic if they know. (laughs) I'm not sure why they won't release what was written. The only thing I heard, I read, was something about uh, talking about the house on Poppy Lane that the basement door was left unlocked. But because he's dead, why can't they? Well, maybe it has other private information. Whatever. I want to know. Well, maybe somebody should do a FOIA. Oh, that's so jargony. Kenneth had purchased the gun legally. Uh, He had no criminal record. So, yeah, whatever. Anything goes. Yeah. I couldn't find out how long the Bryants had been married, but they had operated a dog treat business together called Tri-Palm Chews. 
Mm. It was named after their three Pomeranians, Zena, Roxy, and Richie. The business website posted a message in November 2018 that read, Tripom Chews is no longer in business. Working the long hours we have seven days a week for eight years has taken its toll. Our marriage is over and we're shutting down the business. Wow. Little TMI there on the website. Autumn graduated from Milliken University in Decatur, Illinois in 1997. You know, I wish our ancestors hadn't donated all that money to that university. It's spelled differently than I know. And our ancestors, we we didn't have any with money. Mm -hmm. She was a theater major. Her former professor and mentor, Barry Pearson, said she was, quote, the gentlest of souls. Mm -hmm. And always had a love of dogs. Aww. By the way, the dogs were unharmed in the house, if you were wondering. Thank you, I was. Yes. At the time of this crime, there had been five homicides in five days. Do you remember in that? Maine? Yeah, in Maine. Yeah. Remember that? We were like, wow, yeah. there's a lot of people dying. Yeah. But it slowed down. Just a couple of weeks ago in Lebanon, Maine, which is near the New Hampshire border, Thomas Doyen, 27, killed his ex-partner, Allison Parker, 30, then himself. Allison had moved out of the house on Bigelow Road several weeks prior to her death. On Saturday, May 11th, she went to the house with her parents and friend to get her stuff. She and Doyen were upstairs, and her parents and friend were downstairs when they heard gunshots. The parents and the friend ran out of the house and called police. And in the first article I read about this, it said the Parkers, her parents, lived in the house, too. It was poorly written. It was very poorly written. It meant written. they were in the house. Ha- what it meant to say was that her parents were in the yes, house when okay. it happened. I know. It was very And just written. a tip for everybody when you accompany somebody to go get their stuff, if they need someone to accompany them, stay Don't with them 100% yes. of the time. Although it wasn't clear to me in any article I read whether they knew he was there Right. He may not have told them he was there. I I have to say that... It it was very, very poorly reported. There were every... I kept waiting to read an article that would clarify the stuff in previous ones that didn't make sense to me, and it just never happened. When police got there, they thought it might be a standoff situation. They closed the road to traffic and evacuated nearby homes. But after being unable to make contact with anyone in the house, they went in and found the bodies of Allison and Thomas. Police said there was no record of domestic violence. One of the quotes was something like, no paper record. So at least they aren't saying that just because there isn't a record, there wasn't domestic violence. Right. So that, you know, they, they kind of hinted that there might have been some issue. There might have hmm. been some issues. But a neighbor, <laughs> this is my favorite part. A neighbor, Shelly Stevens, told WGME Channel 13 that she heard the couple arguing before the shots rang out. And this is her quote. So we heard Allison say to him, I'm leaving. And he said, no, you're not. And she goes, yeah, I am. And he goes, no, you cheated on me. And she goes, no, I didn't. And then we heard four shots. Wow. Allison had a seven-year-old daughter from a previous relationship who was not in the house when her mother was killed. Thomas Doyen did own the gun that killed himself and Allison Parker, but there was no information in the stories I read about how he got it or if he owned it legally. The neighbor, Shelly Stevens, said, apparently she's the only one that would talk to Pete, yeah. quote, he seemed like a nice guy. Who mm. knows? If he'd been a good guy and actually been nice to her, she might have taken him back. Really feel sorry for the family. I mean, that little girl, it was Mother's Day weekend. It's sad. And it's such a waste of life. It is. 
They always seem like nice guys. Executive Director of Caring Unlimited, Susan Giambalvo, told Bangor Nation... And Caring Unlimited is a group that Cares with no limits. Yes, they help victims of domestic violence. Told the Bangor Daily News that domestic violence murders are about the abuser having power and control over the victim. Mm Mm-hmm. She said, other things don't matter. It's about what the per- that person wants and how they're going to get it. It's extremely self-centered. It's the idea that I am entitled to have somebody else who's going to do what I want and act in the way that I want them to. Mm-hmm. So when those two murder-suicide happens, there had already been five murders when the, in, in March. No, the one in March, the, the Kenneth and Autumn, Autumn Bryant ones were the fourth and fifth of that oh, okay. time, and then the, these two were later. So what I meant was it was very it was very unusual to right. have five people dead. So that was almost actually a main mini, rather than an, an update because it was well it fit in with our episode seven about main husbands killing their wives. Yes, and Maine's domestic violence murder problem. It. Was new, totally yes, new. Yes, it was totally new. Some of my other ones are too. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, you got maybe a problem with that. No, I don't. But maybe I should play the main mini theme song. Oh, we can always play the main mini theme yeah. song. the one that has them in the correct order this time the counties yes yes cumberland franklin piscataquist somerset aroostook Androscoggin, sagdahawk kennebec lincoln knox hancock waldo washington and york oxford and penobscot wow it's almost like i don't have to play the song i got that actually from maine.gov the state's government website and they have two versions oh. they have the one you just did and then they have one the one where kennebec is in the top and yeah. the first floor yeah. The one I chose to play is a little peppier. It's a little we peppier. had actually played that because I did a main mini a few episodes ago, but there was an, a really bad issue with the audio, and I had to cut the whole main mini out. It was about the guy who went to Google headquarters. Oh, yes. That poor uh, guy. Maybe I'll revive it. If there's more in that case, maybe I'll revive that as a main mini. Because it, it was a good mini. I was very, like, sarcastic. I just heard mini. something on the radio about a guy that went to the Amazon shareholders yeah. meeting to return something to Jeff Bezos because <laughs> he had tried to return something. Yeah, and- yeah. Oh, he's probably one of those guys that they just send stuff to. I read about that in the Boston Globe. Oh, maybe. There are people who just get stuff they didn't order. Um, for a variety, How which can we can talk about some other. I'll okay. do an episode on it. Sometime. Okay, so you're going to be next. Right. I have episode eight, Ooh. Maura Murray. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, our Maura Murray update is kind of like a non-update, but since the case has so much traction online, I'll dive right in. Because as you know, this is one of those cases that people online are obsessed She's with. She's got Ayla and they're living a life yeah, together. Yeah, in Brazil with <laughs> Jim Morrison. So. <laughs> Oh, too soon. I'm sorry. I'm I sorry, make too. But anyway, the the FBI, New Hampshire State Police, and officials from the State Attorney General's office in April searched a home near where UMass College student Maura Murray disappeared in Woodsville, New Hampshire in 2004, and they didn't find anything. Well, yeah. 
So Murray, a 21-year-old nursing student, took off without much explanation on a February night in 2004 and crashed her car into trees in a snowbank along Route 112 in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, which is Woodsville, same area, around 7.30 p.m., very dark, cold winter night. Someone passing by the scene asked if she needed help, but she said no. She'd called AAA, which she hadn't. And when police arrived 10 to 20 minutes later, she was gone. And if you want to know more, you can listen to episode 8. But this past February, Maura's father, Fred Murray, told the Boston TV station and the Whitman Hanson Express, which is a newspaper in the Whitman Hanson area of Massachusetts, that neighbors at the time Maura disappeared told him they believed someone had buried a body in the basement of the house near where she crashed around the time she disappeared and a new concrete floor had been laid. The owners, however, never answered the door to let Fred in to check it out. And Fred, by the way, is quite a guy. He's relentless in his search, at pissing off the police. Some people think he's nuts, um, but his daughter disappeared. I don't 15. blame him. I don't either. I'd be nuts, too. In fact, I'm kind of basing a situation in the book I'm writing on him. I'm not basing it on him, but... You're you're basically copying it. Yeah, I'm plagiarizing Eh, Whatever. No, it's kind of, I realized I was doing this character, and I wondered if in the back of my mind I was kind of inspired by him. He's an inspirational person. Yeah. Anyway, he tried multiple times over the course of 14 years to get in that house, and they wouldn't let him. When new owners bought the house recently, they did let him in, and in November and December, he brought in two trained, accredited cadaver-detecting dogs who sniffed the cellar, and they alerted by lying down in the same spot in the basement of the house. Each one alerted in the same spot. The Express reported that later Murray had ground-penetrating radar, which he said indicated strong findings of an abnormality in the same spot where the dogs had alerted. It's astounding that this basement wasn't looked at before, Murray told the Express, and I really wish I could do his eastern Massachusetts accent. Oh, he has a wonderful accent. But I can't. And I won't try, but you find him on YouTube or something and check it out. I told the police about this in the first year. The state police did an inadequate job when my daughter first went missing. And it's kind of a huge part of this case that he and the police have at times been at odds because he was unhappy with the investigation. There is a new, I think it's Lifetime or something. Um, there may be. There's I something. Uh, this actually sounds not bad. Is that the house where the guy that drove the school bus? Possibly, lived? yeah. I didn't creepy. want to get into all the okay. details, but yeah. yes, it was. It was. I think, and I don't want to say definitively. Sounds. And uh, and the people out there who are more obsessed with this case could speak to that a little better. But I think it was the house of the guy who asked her if she needed help, and she said no, mm-hmm. and okay. he had been looked at. So Fred Murray said three times: two cadaver dogs and ground penetrating radar, all pinged at the exact location that he'd been tipped about in the basement, the exact same spot. New Hampshire Associate Attorney General Jeff Strelzen said there was no probable cause to search the home, and they did not believe there was credible evidence that there was anything there, but it was something else to check off the list. It sounds like they're trying to work a little more with Fred. Oh, I have a question. So what if the people that own the house... And you might not know this. I mean, if they give permission, that doesn't I'm not a lawyer, but yes, they did give permission. But he's saying there's no probable... So he doesn't want to go to the expense to do it. Is that what the the prosecutor's saying? You're saying he's saying there's no probable cause to... I'm getting to what happened. What what he basically said is, I'll, I'll encapsulate that and then get on to... Sometimes I like 
Okay, okay. Introduce a topic. Yes, I know. I know I know the feeling. It okay. happens all the time. <laughs> like, I'm at work or something, and I start, like, I have a little introduction clause to a sentence, but before I can get to the actual that happens topic. happens to me all the time. It, yeah, people think the introduction clause is the point, and yeah, okay. it's just off the rails. Anyway, so Strelson was basically saying the police on their own wouldn't have done this, wouldn't have gone and looked at it and everything. There was no probable cause. There was no evidence, anything, but it was something else to check off their list. In other words, they were going to placate Fred, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it, one more thing to oh, shut Fred Oh, good idea, up Fred. He got the homeowners, Strelson did, to let them search, but nothing that would be evidence in the case was found. They dug up a small area, and Strelson said the private searcher's ground penetrating radar that Fred had talked about had detected d- disturbed ground and not a body. Um, no evidence was found in connection with that case, Strelson said in a press conference afterwards. We're confident there's nothing there at this point. Fred Murray believes a heating unit and other items were placed above the area in question. I trust the doggies. I do too, just like in Madeline. I still think we need to get under devices in the corner and see if there's anything under there, Murray said. I don't know. I never did know, but I'm not satisfied they got anywhere near close enough to the corner. So I would have to see the basement, and I'd have to see uh, rendering Uh, to know what he's talking about. But there have been previous searches connected to the case in the last 15 years, and Fred said the latest dead end, he told WBZ TV in Boston, it was particularly frustrating. This one hurts because I thought we finally had it, he said. This one was worse than the other false alarms or dead ends. I was pretty sure based on what I heard and who the people were and the other things I've heard about them. The Whitman Hanson Express, the newspaper in Massachusetts, reported that Murray's, Maura Murray's half-brother, Kurt Murray, 30, of Halifax, Mass., said his family was given less than 24 hours' notice regarding the search of the basement. He said it was important to him and his family that they be there. Kurt Murray said the next step for the family is to try to work with the New Hampshire authorities. And um, Strelson, for his Hart said, this case is still open and active. We do receive tips and information periodically, as well as generate new information from investigative efforts. And Fred Murray said he's never going to give up. I don't blame him. And I want to say the New Hampshire authorities do seem, from my superficial every once in a while checking in on this case, do seem to be working better with Fred, who has been in the past kind of vilified and treated as a nut job. But I'm wondering how much of that is because of the social media and internet yeah, obsession so. with this case. Yes. As I said, I'm not, I don't know all the details about it, although I would like to watch that. Well, we did cover it pretty thoroughly. We did. No, uh, yes, I know. No, whatever. I don't know what, what she was doing, where she was going. I think if she had killed herself, they would have found her body. She could have been planning on killing herself, and then <laughs> someone did it for her. I think somebody somebody harmed think, her and and did, a, did some, disposed of her. Right, and I think it's not beyond. I mean, people want these answers. Oh, and it's so mysterious. She. I don't, I don't think, think it's beyond the realm though. of possibility that a 21-year-old who feels under a lot of pressure says, fuck it. I'm going to get a bottle of Kahlua, yeah, I'm gonna and I'm going to take off and, yeah. and go be alone somewhere for a week and just veg out and drink and read some books and not be bothered by anybody and screw school. I felt like doing so, that uh, I feel many like doing times. it constantly. <laughs> and the only other reason I would, the other my other theory was that she would have done it because she was going to 
go kill herself and she just was saying fuck it i'm taking off right. i'm gonna get drunk and i'm gonna kill myself but again like i said you would have Right. It wouldn't be a mystery because we would find And her. it also, like, she looked for places to stay online and by phone and stuff, and that seems like an awful lot of effort for suicide. Um, but some people do that, though. Yeah, they go true. and stay in a hotel room and they kill that's themselves. True. But but, um, but if you're going to go stay in a hotel room, you can just drive I to know. Springfield or, or go true. to Motel 6 or whatever. You don't Yeah, I think she for, wanted to get away from everything. And, yeah. and, then, and she loved the woods and the mountains of New Hampshire. And um, someone. Yeah. Somebody did her harm. Unfortunately, yeah, she was in the wrong place at the wrong and time. And also, it's not, and it's not it's that not, mysterious, to right? Me. And it's not, and it's not a bizarre theory that she would be under somebody's basement floor. No, in I fact, don't think it's I watched. Um, I mean, where is she then? Right, they haven't found a body. I mean, there were people around minutes before she was gone. Uh-huh. And I watched um, a video on YouTube, and I wasn't planning to bring this up, so I wish I could remember the name. And I can't, but it was this woman's mother, when the woman was 12 or 13, her mother disappeared, and the and this was in the 60s, and the police were not that interested in finding out what happened. And this one basement that there were rumors she was buried in was searched. It was a cop, spoiler, who killed her multiple times, and they didn't find anything, but they finally did find her after this documentary was made. This documentary was made by a newspaper on Long Island. It's kind of amateurish. I wish I could re- but it was good. It was... They didn't dig deep enough. And I guess if you're deep enough, you know, it's harder, you know, you got to dig. And the woman, the wife of the guy who buried the body said she remembered, and she told the police at the time, seeing him standing in the hole, and he was up to his shoulders. Yeah. Anyway, it's a long story, and we're not talking about that today, but you'll have to find it. I wish I could remember the name. But I think it's your turn now. In episode 12, we talked about crimes related to ride-sharing apps. Oh, yeah. Remember the Uber guy? Mm-hmm. Although, this, these crimes are a little bit different than his. He was actually an Uber driver who had the app that changed to the devil. No, the devil, yeah. Only I a few have, of us have that. that app. I haven't been able to find it. We shouldn't make light of people no. going, but we do. That was the, This is the way we process it. So, recently in the news, there was an Uber uh, death related to Uber. Samantha Josephson was a 21-year-old senior at the University of South Carolina. On early Friday morning, March 29th, about 2 a.m., she ordered an Uber to pick her up and bring her back to her apartment at the Hub on campus in downtown Columbia, South Carolina. Security camera footage showed Samantha waiting with her phone in hand as a black Chevrolet Impala pulled up and she got in. The sidewalks were full of people. This was the Five Points District downtown where all the college kids go bar hopping. Samantha didn't show up for her morning shift at the Liberty Tap Room in Columbia the next morning. Well, no, that morning, I guess. Her boss, Rich Vaskovich, became concerned when her friends called the restaurant looking for Samantha since she hadn't come home the night before. At 1.30 p.m., Samantha Josephson was reported missing by her college friends. The police moved quickly, getting out photos to media outlets and finding the security camera footage and releasing that to news sources. Meanwhile, about 70 miles away in Clarendon County, two turkey hunters discovered a woman's body about 40 feet off a dirt road in the woods. The clothes the woman was wearing matched what Samantha had on the night before, and it was determined that this was, in fact, Samantha. Only about two hours after she was first reported missing, they found the body. I think the somebody at the uh, Clarendon County Sheriff's Department was on the ball and saw For her. For a change. Yeah. Uh, hey, that's not very nice about no, Clarendon County Sheriff's No, I meant just in general people. A communi- I think people are actually 
police are more on the yeah. ball about missing people. Or, or, or also just connecting with each other yes. more than they used to. A community alert describing the car was issued, and at about 3 a.m. Saturday, March 30th, a patrol officer saw a black Chevrolet Impala only a couple of blocks from Five Points, the area where Samantha had been picked up only 25 hours earlier. The police officer pulled the Impala over and asked the driver to get out of the car. He did, but ran off. He was caught a short time later. In the car, police found blood in the trunk and on the passenger seat, which Tess later confirmed to be Samantha's. They also found Samantha's phone in the car, antibacterial wipes, bleach, and window cleaner. He didn't do a very good job. The child safety locks were activated in the back seat so a passenger couldn't get out easily. Mm. I accidentally did that a few times when I was an Uber driver. (laughs) My passengers were like, um, and I'm like, I'm really not trying to kill you. And we joked about it. (laughs) Sadly. (laughs) Sadly. The driver of the car was Nathaniel D. Rowland, 24. It turns out he had grown up in the area where Samantha's body was found, and police said if you weren't from that area, it wasn't easy to get to. Samantha died of multiple stab wounds. Mm. She was described by family and friends as sweet. People called her Sammy. Her boss at the restaurant, Rich Vaskovich, said she was as sweet as can be. She was honestly one of those people you love to be around. Mm. We can only guess what happened the night Samantha was killed unless her killer tells the story, but police assume she thought he was her Uber and got into the car. And this is something that is not uncommon. A recent story in the New York Times told the story of Elizabeth Suarez, 28, who last July got into a car in Las Vegas when she assumed he was her Uber. She asked the driver, are you waiting for Liz? And he said yes, and she got in. She soon realized her mistake when the driver turned the radio way up went in the wrong direction, and wouldn't answer her questions. <laughs> then her, that sounds like me when I was an Uber driver. Uh, I just didn't like talking to people. Then her real driver called to ask where she was, and she knew she was screwed. Mm-hmm. The faux Uber driver pulled into an empty parking lot and said, Give me your wallet, give me your phone, give me everything you have. Liz jumped out of the moving car to get away from the guy. She ended up with a cracked skull, a broken wrist, and a broken ankle. Still, when she reported the abduction and robbery, police were dubious. Liz said they asked her what she was doing out at 4 a.m. and what was she wearing. What the fuck? Is this the 60s or something? Uh, no shit. She talked to a local TV station and went Where did that happen again? Las Vegas. Jesus And it was just last, just last year. Yeah. She talked to a local TV station and went on social media to let people know to be careful. Of course, asshole said it was her own fault for getting in the wrong car. Because you know mm-hmm. how people on social media yes, are. Yes, Fucking assholes. I know. The guy has not yet been arrested, and Liz Suarez believes he's probably still staking out the bars and nightclubs and casinos for victims. She said, quote, he was waiting for the right person. He knew exactly what time to be out there. I think he'd done it in the past, and he'll continue to do it because he's still out there. Mm-hmm. There are so many other crimes like this. A man in Connecticut who was recently arraigned on charges of kidnapping and raping two women after posing as a rideshare driver. There's a guy in Chicago who police have charged with raping five women after pretending to be an Uber driver. They hang around on the street looking for women who seem like they're waiting for a ride. A lot of them have decals on their windshields with the rideshare logos on them. You can even buy the light-up signs online. Lyft, I think, is trying to do some... It's not with all the signs, but they're trying to do some way that the sign will be the color like it'll change color and the mm-hmm. color on your phone so you'll know that that's oh, your that's eye. good that's good it's probably not that hard to do right 
Another woman. If who- they can put Satan on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. You think they can do that? No, Satan did that himself. Oh, that's right. Another woman who told her story to the New York Times was Carla Westland, 30. In 2017, she fell asleep in what she thought was her Uber Rides car. I'm, I'm not trying to be judged, blame the victim, but I think she passed out, not fell asleep. Yeah. She woke up to him banging her head against the seat. Ah. He had an Uber sticker. He was pretending to be an Uber driver, she told the New York Times. She was in the car with him for about three hours, but she was, and he raped her. Mm. But she was finally able to talk him into letting her out near her boyfriend's house. She immediately went to the hospital and reported the rape. Unfortunately, police gave her shit when she told them what happened. She said as she told her story over and over, she remembered more details. As she added the details, police said she was changing her story. Well, you know, it's funny because I just heard some policemen on a podcast talking about how it's not abnormal for people to add details as they remember more and they're in less shock. But, but that it's guy, consistency but... that's changing your story. There, I actually heard a discussion of this. So those cops, the ones We're you're assholes. talking about. Yeah, are bad cops. They're fucking assholes. Yeah. Carla said, I felt like I was definitely being treated like I did something wrong. And she's now a volunteer for PAVE, which I'm assuming is a, I don't know what that acronym stands for, but it's a nonprofit group with the People Against Violence everywhere that's my guess oh that sounds good but it's a non-profit group with the goal of ending sex crimes hmm. then i'm probably wrong about what it stands for in april 2018 nicholas morales was charged with raping carla and six other women by posing as an uber driver hmm. he pleaded not guilty and is still working his way through the court system as for nathaniel david rowland the guy in South Carolina, Samantha Johnson's alleged attacker. He's in jail right now. And in an article in the Columbia, I think it's Columbia, South Carolina, the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His family and friends said it is not possible for him to have committed the crime. According to his cousin, Trey Elmore, Nathaniel was passed out at a house when he was supposed to be abducting Samantha. Trey said, yes, his cousin ran when the cops stopped him the next day, but that doesn't mean it was him who killed Samantha. The family claims someone else must have taken the car. Nathaniel's father, Henry Rowland, told WACH, Fox TV, quote, he checked his pockets when he woke up and he didn't have his keys. So he walked outside to try and find the vehicle. Mm. He found the vehicle, opened the door, saw his keys and saw the blood in the vehicle. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, I had to keep saying vehicle. I know, yeah. The evening prior to Samantha's abduction, Nathaniel made a bunch of posts on Facebook. The last one was at 1233 a.m., about an hour and a half before she was abducted, which was a post about his basketball skills. But it didn't say what he said. At about 5 p.m. Friday, about an hour after Samantha's body was found, he posted, I, I don't know if these are, this is what he posted. It might be lyrics to a song that I don't know. He posted, I love to do it with you, but I'll be damned if I can't do it without you. Hmm. Sounds like a song. Yeah. The state reported in the days after Nathaniel's arrest, his Facebook page was flooded with comments, many of them racist, calling for his torture and death because he is black and Samantha is white. See, now I was picturing a white kid. However, in his boyhood home of Clarendon County, which is 48% black and 47% white, a lot of people think Nathaniel is being falsely accused and his arrest is feeding into racial stereotypes. Eartha Ham, a 62-year-old neighbor who knew Nathaniel growing up said he has always been a very good boy Mm. nathaniel does have a pretty clean record with no violent crimes and he is 24 he's not like 18 um he had stuff like transporting alcohol trying to sell stolen goods speeding tickets etc although that doesn't mean he didn't do it but if it wasn't him who was it 
like his Ooh, car. I mean, mm-hmm. as for being a ride share passenger, the best thing to do is to ask the driver, who are you here to pick up? Right. Don't say your name to him. They will know the name of the person on the account. So that doesn't always work because I've had people order a car for somebody else. So it says like, like I had a guy named Richard or something and right. it was a girl and he said, but he was there. He but said, then I would say if I were the driver, if it was the wrong name, are you ordering this for somebody? And if so, who is it? Yes, that's true. Although you don't talk to the person. You, right. It just lights up on your phone. I know. With the devil at. No, it just <laughs> lights up on your phone and says, Richard, pick up Richard at. The right. Bubba's but then bar. when, when you say, who are you here to pick up? No. Oh, well, the person says it, right. yes. Huh. Yeah, but right. I would have said Richard. And was I reading? Well, see, the problem is a lot of times, like with me, a lot of my rides were drunk. This time it was some guy, he didn't even know the girl, but she was super drunk. Right. And he called to order her a ride, and he put her in my car, right. and I took her home. Right. Didn't I read somewhere, and I can't even remember if this was the case when I was driving Uber, I didn't do it for very long, that they're looking at, or maybe they were doing, and I just don't remember, that not only does it have who your driver is, but it has what kind of car and what color. It, does say, it doesn't say the color, but it always has said the license plate. Yeah. It has your picture, and it has the type of car. It doesn't always have the color. Right. And you're supposed to be looking at that, but again... It's hard to when if people it's are drunk. On a busy street too. You don't know the condition of some of the people, especially yeah, girls. Yeah, uh-huh. I've picked up, and it, it, I, I've said it before. I said it. Just please be careful, and please watch out for your friends. I am very concerned about even real Uber drivers. I have had. I can think of several girls that passed out in my car. One that was barely standing when I picked her up, and just babbled the whole time. She was super drunk. It used yeah. to upset me. Yeah. Um, so anyways, please be careful. But do you remember episode 29? How can I forget That it? episode was about Massachusetts state drug lab chemist Annie Duckin. The episode that just keeps on giving. Who falsified drug evidence in order to convict people charged with drug offenses. Annie worked at Hinton Lab in the Boston area. In that episode, I also talked about chemist Sonia Farrakh who worked in a state lab in Amherst, Massachusetts, in the western part of the state. So Annie was in the eastern part, Sonia was in the western part, and she also falsified evidence. Annie Dukin was caught in 2011, and Sonia Farrakh was caught a couple years later, right about the time Annie was in court. I only touched on Sonia's story in episode 29, but it's pretty crazy. What they do is at the drug labs, they have drugs there that they use as, um, I think they're like a sample drug. So when you're testing um, right. the drug, you can compare it. Right. Well, she went through all the meth- methamphetamine mm. in her lab. Hmm. I don't know if she stuck something else in there. And then she just started using every drug possible because what the hell? She was like high all the time mm. for like eight years. And supposedly her her fellow employees said they didn't realize yeah, she how was do people high. get away with that shit i don't know how you even can do any how you can function so anyways sonia actually worked for the hinton lab too but not i don't think it i think it was before annie got there annie dukin's reasons for falsifying evidence are kind of a bit less concrete than sonia's annie wanted to be seen as the best chemist they had and the most helpful to the prosecution huh. and you'll have to listen to episode 29 if you want even though both cases happened years ago like i said eight and seven eight years ago annie is out of prison while sonia is still serving time both cases left the state of massachusetts criminal system in an uproar because of annie's crimes in the lab over thirty-six thousand drug convictions were overturned and more than ten thousand have been overturned because of sonia the state not only has to decide whether to 
drop the charges on people who have already served time or paid fees. Those people will have to be paid back for fines they paid or possibly be paid compensa- compensation for the lost work time or other pain and suffering. In a recent article on May 2nd, 2019, the Boston Globe broke down the ways the state will have to pay money because of the two chemists. And I will add also because of the crappy oversight. It's not just these two women's right. fault. The Duke and Farrakh defendants, as they are now called, <laughs> must be paid back for, one, court costs, which would be separate from fines paid or costs of drug analysis, costs if they had to pay a lawyer or something. Two, probation fees the defendants had to pay monthly, not to mention fees they may have been charged for ankle monitors, etc. Three, court fines. Four, license reinstatement fees. Five, DNA collection fees. Massachusetts state law requires the person submitting a DNA sample must pay for collecting and analyzing, which I didn't know. Jesus Christ. Six, drug analysis fees, which is laughable considering, you know. How ironic. Seven, victim witness assessment fees. So I guess if they're assessing you uh, or victims, you have to pay uh, as the defendant. Eight, GPS monitoring fees. Yes, when you are required to wear an ankle monitor, you have to pay for it, which Mm. I never knew. Nine, parole fees. Again, state law requires defendants pay for parole. Jeez, it doesn't pay to be a criminal. No shit. These are just some of the things the state is on the line for. Only a handful of people have gotten any compensation at all. One problem is record keeping. A lot of the records records were not computerized even though we were well into the 20-fucking-first century. Jesus Christ. So even though there is a class action suit and a ton of other people applying to be repaid, it's taking the state forever to go through the records and figure out who paid exactly what and how much they are owed. Mm. The state of Massachusetts says it will be a few more months at least before they start issuing reimbursements. And also related to the Dukin case, one of the defendants who had his drug conviction overturned was a man named Francisco Robles. A few weeks ago, Francisco was pulled over in Salem, Massachusetts, the police say he was texting while behind the wheel. His driver's license said he was from Puerto Rico. But patrolmen Robert Monk and James Bedard were suspicious because the man had two FBI numbers. I had to look up what that meant. You have an FBI number when your fingerprints and criminal record have been submitted to the FBI. Oh. So presumably you would only have one number. Right. Robles could also not describe the flag of Puerto Rico. <laughs> To the officers when asked to, and was driving without a valid registration on his car. He was charged with identity fraud, public assistance fraud, driving while texting, use of a false vehicle document, use of <laughs> use of a false vehicle documentation, and driving without a registration. Robles was released on a thousand dollars bail and was arraigned a few days later. While in court, the prosecutor, Michael Verone, argued that Robles could be a flight risk and his identity was probably false. Judge Randy Chapman wasn't buying that that easily. She gave the police and prosecutor three days to prove Robles wasn't who he said he was. It turns out that Francisco Robles is really a Dominican Republic citizen by the name of Adolfo Richard Severino Santos. In one of his prior arrests as Francisco Robles, He accidentally gave his birthplace as the Dominican Republic. So the police did a database search of that country using facial recognition technology. It's weird that they, like, went through all this trouble for this arrest. They also searched Facebook and found him under the name Richard Severino. They showed the info to the judge the next time they were in court. They printed out, like, the Facebook pages. Mm. The prosecutor asked for $15,000 bail. Santos' defense attorney said he had a clean record and was a family man. 
His record was technically clean because his record was all under the other name, Francisco Robles, and that guy's record had been wiped clean because of Annie Dickens' misdeeds. The judge was like, no, the fact that he had used the false identity for so long was, quote, a tremendous flight risk. Francisco Robles, a.k.a. Adolfo Richard Severino Santos, had to surrender his passport and is now in jail. Ah, Thanks well, so Annie Dukin just gives in so many mysterious ways. Her and Sonia. Yeah, her and Sonia. Poor Sonia. They she kept showing pictures of her. I don't know where Annie Dukin is now. She's taken off because she's out of, she probably right. changed her name. And she just looks like a very sad person. Well, I think she is sad. Anybody who would use every drug in the place for I eight know. years. I mean, there's like, something yeah, I don't understand. Anyways. Okay. Well, I have two very brief ones. Ooh. People will be happy to know. They love these. Episode 33, Michelle Carter, Conrad Roy, the texted episode. A wrongful death suit brought by Conrad Roy's mother, Lynn Roy, against Michelle Carter for $4.2 million was dismissed in April. Now, Michelle Carter, for those of you who don't know and or haven't listened to episode 33, is the young woman in Massachusetts who basically hounded troubled Conrad Roy to um, commit suicide by carbon monoxide. And I know I'm oversimplifying it, but you can listen to episode 33 and get the details. The Boston Herald reported that court records show the lawsuit was dismissed with prejudice and without costs, meaning that it can't be brought back to court. And Lynn Roy filed the suit in August 2017. Since then, Michelle had been convicted. Her appeals were used up and she started serving her prison time. And I did an update on that recently. Related to this, the other night I watched a 48 Hours episode, A Death in Payson Canyon. And I think it's from this season. I don't know. I have the CBS app. You know, I watch the ones that aren't locked. In which a 15-year-old girl was, quote-unquote, helped along to suicide in a case that was more egregious than Carter's and that the boy pushed Chandra Brown just as hard as he could And he also made it clear to many people he was fascinated with death, murder, and he felt he was getting away with murder by doing it, according to texts to people and social media posts. Jesus Christ. Interesting how the boy, Tyrell Prohibition, he also videotaped, well, not videotaped, but recorded on his phone her death for 10 minutes. Ew! Um, Yet he didn't get a tiny fraction of the public furor. Michelle Carter did. And I would think that since it was since the Carter case, it would have drawn even more attention, you would think. Particularly his text record, the minute he met this girl, he started texting her about it. He just zeroed in on her depression. And it's a very sad story, but and it makes you angry. But it also made me angry, now that I think Michelle Carter deserves a break, but that... This one kind of just went under everybody's radar, and you'd think there would be more attention to this. And, of course, the episode had to bring up the state it happened in. I think it was Utah. It was either she had either lived in Idaho and moved to Utah or vice versa. Well, I think states with lots of cliffs and stuff they didn't stay away from. It didn't have anything to do with a cliff. Oh, I thought you said he pushed. Oh, she he hung pushed herself. Oh. He pushed her. Jesus Christ. No, they talked a lot about how they, since they didn't have laws against assisted suicide, there wasn't a lot they could do. But in Massachusetts, they found a creative way to, yes, they did. to convict Michelle Carter. And maybe that's why it got that much attention, although to charge her and convict her. Recommend people watch it. CBS 
48 Hours Mystery, A Death in Payson Canyon. Aww. And um, I could have done it as a whole little mini, but I just, I didn't have the time. My next update is episode 35, Carol Jenkins. And I don't think I had this. I didn't go back to listen to the episode or to subsequent episodes to see if we had updated. But I don't think we have updated her. It, it would have been right after we did it. But she's the 21-year-old woman who was selling encyclopedias Aww, her yes. first day on the job and was killed in a racially motivated attack in Martinsville, Indiana in 1968. Our episode was in September of... 2017, I want to say. Yes, and in that, and, so. and that November, I think it was that November. No, I'd have to go look. Maybe it was last November. I don't know. Martinsville city leaders dedicated a maple tree and engraved stone in her honor. I think in our report. Because of our podcast. Well, it's kind of weird because I found, and I'm not saying nothing has happened with that case, but I found that online not because of anything that was going on, but I kind of stumbled upon it looking for something else, some old stories on it. I don't think it was because of our podcast because, let's face it, we're not world famous or anything. But um, in our episode, somebody had wanted to do more and it had been resisted. Martinsville is what's known as a sundown town. Or was. I'm sure things are better now. But it's one of the homes of the Klan. It's one of those towns where in the 60s, if you've seen the movie Green Book, even though that's a white entitlement version of racial harmony or an injustice, a town where if you're black, you want to be out by sundown. Also, the same week that Martinsville dedicated a maple tree in plaque, her, in her town, Rushville, Indiana, um, they named a park after her. Aww. And her sister, Laura Davis, said, I want everyone to take home exactly what I said, which is Carol's challenge to them is to love somebody that's different. Oh, that's sweet. And um, she could have said something hateful, but no. instead she said, and it's a sad story. If you haven't listened to that one, listen to it. It's, it's an eye-opener. And you, it's not always, it's not people's fault all the time that if they're ignorant of what other people have to go through. So it's nice to, you know, if you've grown up in a fairly harmonious place or if you've grown up in a place where it's mostly people that look like you and you you just don't, if you uh, say like in Maine, there's, it's mostly white. Yeah. we've And and there is some racial, there is some racial tension, but not as much. And I think it's because it doesn't come up that often. Right. It's not. And somebody that's different is more of a novelty than the white people. And then when they're more of them start coming, the white people don't feel threatened in Maine because there there's there are few minorities to threaten but them. But there are some. But they, if you're if you're an American Indian, uh, you know if you're a member of the Passamaquoddy or Penobscot or Mi'kmaq, you or feel it. The tribe, and, and or you, for a long time, French Canadian, even yes. back when we were in high school in Augusta and stuff. So there are levels to it. Mm, yeah, and there are and, a lot of African refugees here now that. I hear a lot of comments. And they're, yeah. And so. Racist and stupid. So. And so I think it's just good to try, you know, we're all ignorant in some way in it. We're just trying to un-ignorify un- ourselves. So uh, speaking of racism, uh, did you did you see that in our the town we lived in when we were kids? They're gonna there's gonna be a Klan rally. Which in a town? Week or so Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, we lived in Dayton, Ohio, from 1968 mm-hmm. to 73. Wow, so. there's gonna be a Klan rally in Dayton. Yeah. Unbelievable. Oh, so wonderful. that's sad. See, that's and that's the thing. Not to go on a big thing, but what I don't understand. It's one thing for people to be ignorant because they 
were raised that way or they grew up in a culture that way or they grew up in a place that was that. But there's no reason once you're enlightened to be ignorant. And I was driving, I can't remember through what town, a town in northern Maine, either Penobscot or Aroostook County last week, and saw a big Confederate flag flying off a porch. I doubt the person is from the South, whether that person is, I will say he is or not. And I know that I'm making a huge generalization, but I've never seen, I'm not saying women don't have Confederate flags, but I've always seen them associated with men up here in Maine, at least. If if you're in Maine and have a Confederate flag on your pickup truck or your house or anything else, all you are saying is, I am a racist. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else you are saying about it. And I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you're from the South and moved up here. I don't give a shit. You are, in fact, if you're in the South and have it. Because you've learned now that it's not a symbol of history, tradition, or sacrifice. It's a symbol that was revived simply to crap on or segregate, well, or or, or terrorize black people. Remind them. And if there's a black person out there who listens to this, or you know somebody who's black, who likes the Confederate flag, who, who thinks it's a symbol of their history, please have them yeah, talk to us, I'd because like I have know. yet to hear a black person um, say that. So that's my rant. It just yeah. pissed me off when I saw that Confederate flag. It was in a house on Route 2, up in the I'm Lincoln, Maine area, or Island Falls, Maine area. So I'm next. Yes. What's why? What number do you? Episode thirty six oh. is one. It's one of my favorite episodes. I don't know why. Oh, I have a couple episodes. That are I my do favorite. too. Which one is this? Remind me. Appalachian Trail. Murders. Oh yes, I love that. that. For some reason, I liked doing that one, and I liked the Mad Sculptor one. I don't know why. Yeah, that was a good one too. <laughs> that one we talk about visualization. Yes. All the time well, now actually, I'm trying to practice visualization, <laughs> but I'm not doing it right. I don't think. If you I, have, I was so, I was looking at job ads and I saw that one place was looking for people for their visualization <laughs> team and I'm like I could do that you have a team but then I thought I'm not that good at visualization because no. the things I'm trying well, to visualize are not happening. Robert, what's his name? Wasn't he? No. Or Richard? Um, was it Richard? Bobby? Robert? Robert anyway, I, we'd yeah, have to listen. He to wasn't the very good at it. Anyway, either. episode thirty-six was about murder on the Appalachian Trail. And yes, I pronounce it Appalachian Trail. And if people don't like it, they can sue me. Why? What? How else would oh, you pronounce it? Oh, I don't it? know. There's different ways you're supposed to pronounce it. Appalachian or something. I don't who, know. The in people, what universe? Uh, talk to people who live south of us. How south? In the Appalachian Mountains. They well, it they pronounce it their way. We have it up here in Maine, too. And in Maine, we say Appalachian. And we live in Maine, so that's how we're fucking no saying it. Um, Why? Did somebody say something? Not to me specifically, okay. but people... It's a thing, okay? Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. So, there is another murder on the trail to add the list of 11 that I had. Although the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, Conservancy says there are 10, but there was one that was iffy. When I did my list, I remember, I don't know which one now, but it was kind of like, is it on the trail or not? And I counted it on. I'm sure they're counting it as not on the trail because they don't want to have more murders. Yeah, it's just like AT. It's, it's just like, well, not just like a long time ago in another lifetime. I was a sports editor in New Hampshire, and we had um, we covered the races, the NASCAR races at at the track and loud in there. There were a couple deaths, and one of the sports writers who later was arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe I'll do that one someday. A little mm, close to home. Little close. It told me that you rarely see. In the news or in a statement from the track that in a fatal crash, the guy died at the track. They always die at the hospital on the way to the hospital because the track and NASCAR 
don't want that close association with that makes sense. death. Yeah. Hmm. To them, yeah. To them. I have coming up an update on Charlie Cullen, the serial killer Ooh! nurse. And one thing I may or may not have mentioned it in the episode, hospitals, certain kinds of hospitals, if somebody is dying, they'll transfer them to somewhere else so that they won't have that death against their hospital. They'll throw them out the door. Yeah. Anyway, Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. Even though we talk about the murders on the Appalachian Trail, it's actually a very safe place to be considering the millions of people that are on the trail from, you know, spring till fall. Day hikers and... There's millions. I'm not going to go into a lot of the detail about the background of the Appalachian Trail. You can listen to episode 36. I'm assuming that You've listened to episode 36, and if you haven't, you should, because there's, it's a good one. But there's a, the, I do a lot of history of the trail, and I'm going to assume that you know what the Appalachian Trail is. If you don't, look it up. You could also read my third mystery novel, Bad, <laughs> yes. Bad News Travels. Yes, you could do that, too. <laughs> For another look at death on the Appalachian Trail. I got most of my information about this crime from the New York Times and Outside Magazine, and they had totally some totally different shit. It was kind of annoying, but I trust Outside Magazine a little bit more because the... Than the failing New York Times. Oh, God. <laughs> the crime I'm going to talk about was committed Saturday morning, early Saturday morning, May 11th of this year. Of 2019, in case you're listening sometime way in the future. On Friday night... Or in the past. No, that, okay. no, that doesn't work. On, Friday, on the Friday night before, two pairs of hikers encountered James Jordan, a 30-year-old from West Yarmouth, Massachusetts. According to court documents, he was, quote, acting disturbed and unstable hmm. and was playing his guitar and singing. <laughs> <laughs> that asshole! <laughs> The group of four set up camp near Massey Gap in southern Virginia, a heavily forested part of the trail in the mountains. It might also have been near Mount Rogers National Recreation Area, depending on the source. So I don't know that area very well, but one said that was near Massey Gap, the other. So James, who was known by the trail name Sovereign, <laughs> though he sometimes insisted on being called Night Owl or Tallahassee Red. And just, can I just say, you don't get to pick your trail name, and I bet ya he named himself Sovereign, because I can't see anyone he didn't else. Like Sovereign, he'd oh, get okay. mad. and t- okay. He sometimes okay. got mad. I take that back. Sometimes he got mad and said people had to call him Night Owl, Night Owl or Tallahassee Red, but he showed up at their campsite. He's the guy that they had seen before playing the guitar and acting erratic. He threatened to pour gas on their tents and set them on fire. The group decided to move to another campsite. As they were preparing to go, Sovereign, he, I'm just going to call him Sovereign, it makes it easier, he pulled out a knife. Two of the hikers ran north on the trail, calling 911 as they fled, and he chased them. But it's a good they, thing they had cell service. I know. They got away, so he came back. He returned to the campsite where he started arguing with the remaining two hikers, a man and a woman. The man, Richard Sanchez, 43, made an emergency call from his cell phone as Sovereign attacked him with a knife. The woman, who has not been identified by name, tried to run, but Sovereign caught up with her and stabbed her several times before she fell to the ground and pretended to be dead. Sovereign went back to the campsite. The victim, she must, she was in the woods a little way, so he didn't see her. She got up and ran down the trail, where she found two hikers camping off the trail. With their help, she was able to make it six miles to a trailhead, oh. where they called 911, and she was brought to the hospital in Bristol, Tennessee. I always think of that song. There's a song by Steve Earle where he says... I shot him in Virginia, and he died in Tennessee because oh, yeah, yeah. I was in Bristol. Yeah. Sovereign got back on the trail and came upon a tent where two hikers were asleep. He began yelling at them that he needed a flashlight. They didn't come out of the tent. 
at a press conference the Sunday after the crime, Wyeth County Sheriff Keith Dunnigan said, quote, they were real reluctant to just talk to him. <laughs> they thought it was a little unusual. They didn't even see the person, and luckily, they didn't come out of the tent. Yeah, good for them. Sovereign was already known to a lot of the hikers and some of the law enforcement in the area. He had been hanging around the trail for about six weeks, being at the least annoying, and but at the worst, threatening and scary. As we discussed in episode 36, the hikers on the trail are a community who pass messages along and keep in touch. A lot of people were talking about this odd, erratic guy who was wearing a heavy winter coat, knit hat, and was accompanied by a dog with a service vest. And the years before on the trail, people would keep track by writing notes, and, and they still do in with the, the log, log books. books. Right. But I think also people, now that they have social media and stuff, there's even more of a, right. a connection with people. Yeah, so so they're warning people. And, yeah. The log books along the trail were full of messages to watch out for him after he was arrested on April 25th on the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. He had apparently threatened to kill his dog unless the campers gave him food. And I believe the article wasn't clear, but I believe he meant the campers give him food, not, right, not the, the dog, dog food. He was going to kill it his dog. It was shitty writing, New York Times. He was going to kill his dog to eat it. If they no, he food. wasn't going to eat the dog. He was oh. threatening the dog with his knife. He's saying, I'm going to kill my dog if you don't give me some food. Oh, okay. I don't think he was going to eat the dog. No, I heard somebody t- talking about oh, maybe that. He like, did he say said, that. like he said he was going to eat, kill and eat his dog oh, maybe he because he was that. really hungry. And oh, he, that could be true then. But because that may have been somebody's speculation. There's, there's a lot of bullshit in this, yeah, okay. as you'll see. But even before that, he was making a nuisance of himself. A week or so before that incident, he threatened some hikers at a shelter in Tennessee. And th- this all takes place in the area which Virginia, Tennessee, and uh, North Carolina. It's at, so it's in a right. few different states because of the way the trail goes. As, and if you listen to episode 36, you'll know. Or, yeah, look at a map. Or look at a map. No, listen to episode 36. Yeah, listen to episode 36. A day or so later... When the hikers got to a hostel, they reported Sovereign to Sheriff Mike Hensley of Unicoi. I think it's Unicoi. I'm sorry if it's not Tennessee people, but Unicoi County, Tennessee. Sheriff Hensley told Outside Mar- Magazine, quote, We knew there was trouble down there with this boy. What really got my attention was that one of the hikers said he told them it's going to be a bad day for hikers on the trail. Yeah, that would get my attention. He said, <laughs> Sheriff Hensley sent deputies to look for Sovereign, but they couldn't catch up to him. North Carolina law enforcement found him and observed him a couple days later, but since there was no warrant for his arrest, they didn't stop him. Mm. Now, it seems to me they could still stop him and talk to him. If he was... A black guy walking down the street of the city, I bet they would yeah. stop him. Yeah, you can stop and talk to anyone. You can stop him and say, look, people are complaining right. about you. What are you doing? Right. That's bullshit. I know. I think they just didn't feel like it. Yeah. Just like the guys that couldn't find him. Right. Air quotes. Or just quotes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true. But I was doing air quotes. I know you were doing air quotes. But people can't see him. Sheriff Hensley told Outside Magazine that this was prior to his arrest. On April 21st, Sovereign was bugging hikers at a trailhead telling them they needed a password to get on the trail. And he said he was like the keeper of the trail. Fuck you. That's my password for you, buddy. The next day, he showed up at a road crossing where trail angels, and trail angels are people that, I call them trail groupies, sorry. But they they hang around, they give people food and stuff like that. They live in the area. So they were handing out food. And Sovereign started yelling at hikers, and the hikers called police. And so he was arrested with the fake ID, pot, drug paraphernalia, and a 17-inch knife. The knife was taken by Sheriff Hensley's office as evidence, but he apparently got was able to get another knife. 
And this, I think, is the same incident that he was arrested April 25th for, but because the two sources had different information, it was Mm -hmm. weird. Sheriff Hensley said none of the hikers who had trouble with Sovereign were willing to press charges or testify in court, so he was arrested for the fake ID and drug charges. Can I just say, that's something that really bugged me about the story, and they they make it clear they didn't want to press charges or testify because they didn't want to interrupt their trail thing, but I feel like... And I'm not a lawyer. I just watch a lot of TV. But I feel like they should have been able to press charges. But it seems to me if there could have been some creative way, this is well, a dangerous also, he's man. he's not going to be in court for a while. Right. And, and that's what I mean. It, it somehow could have been worked out because if you've been training and preparing to hike the Appalachian Trail for a year or more, obviously you don't want all that expense to go to waste. I know. I feel like in some cases they've been a little vilified or the explanation hasn't been there. I don't, I don't blame I feel it like wasn't, Well, it wasn't, he hadn't murdered anyone at this right. point. He was just annoying. He was just being a, but abusive. But as we know now, red He didn't flags. attack anybody. I know, but yeah, it's I know. easy to say. I know. I know. I'm not, but what I want to say is I'm not blaming the hikers. Yeah. I see a lot of that. Oh, they, they didn't want to leave the trail to, well, there, it's more complicated. I mean, things have happened to me before where people have yelled at me on the street or, or scared me, or and that, it's just you just want to let right. it go. Right. So I, I don't know. Right. They didn't know what he was going to do. He pled guilty and was let go and ordered to stay away from the trail. Sheriff Hensley said, "I done all I could do. <laughs> the only thing I could do was go go with the charges I had. I knew this guy was a serious problem." Mm-hmm. And Sovereign did not stay off the trail. Of course he didn't. No. In Damascus, Virginia, people tried to help Sovereign. Ben Bullock, a hiker from Austin, Texas, told the New York Times, a couple of folks pulled him aside and said, hey, the trail's not your place. Hey, dude. Can we get you a bus (laughs) ticket? And this was according to the New York Times. Mm Mm-hmm. In their story, they said that Sovereign either left the bus or got kicked off and returned to the trail. But Outside Magazine spoke with Matthew Norman, known as Odie. He's a through-hiker and founder of the Hikers Yearbook, which is a yearly record of hikers on the AT. Odie met Sovereign May 2nd near Roan Mountain State Park in Tennessee. Odie recognized Sovereign from his arrest photo, which hikers had been circulating among themselves. Odie invited Sovereign to dinner. Odie told Outside Magazine, quote, We all knew about his violent interactions by then. My intention was to take him off the trail for his own safety and the safety of other hikers. Odie and Sovereign had quite the conversation over dinner. Sovereign told Odie that the hikers, or the mountain people as he called them, were being infiltrated by people who were, quote, trying to steal their instruments. Hmm. And that Sovereign was staying on the trail in order to protect the mountain people. Sovereign told Odie that he had relatives in Maryland. Odie offered to buy Sovereign a Greyhound bus ticket to Maryland, and Sovereign accepted the offer. Odie drove Sovereign and his dog 90 miles to Johnston City, Tennessee. The two men and dogs spent the night in a motel on May 3rd. Odie put Sovereign and his dog, which neither article said what breed or the dog's name or anything, which fucking pisses me off. I read something about the dog somewhere, but I can't remember what it was. Well, just said he had a service bus. But he put them on a bus heading north. So you can put a dog on a Greyhound bus. Apparently. And well, he oh, had, he had a, a service vest on. <laughs> Odie said, I didn't want to put him anywhere near a trail town. That's why he drove 90 miles. Yeah. Good for but Odie. alas, it seems like Sovereign and his pup got up at the next stop. He reminds me of the other guy that killed the people and then killed people again. I know where I read about the dog. In the Boston Globe, because he's from the Cape. Oh, because he's from, yes, because he's from the, yes, yeah. he's from Cape Cod. Yeah. Yeah. 
A week later, James Jordan, or Sovereign, killed Richard Sanchez and tried to kill his unnamed female companion. That's too bad she doesn't have a name. That must have been hard on her. The the morning Sanchez was stabbed to death, the Wyeth County Sheriff's Office tactical team used cell tower pings to figure out where the attack had taken place. It was a four-mile hike, and they reached the campsite at about a quarter past six Saturday morning. Sovereign's dog was at the campsite, and he led them to the killer. Well, the article doesn't say, but he must have been close by. I don't know. If, I mean, Sovereign must have been yeah, right around there. Right. The dog led them. It wasn't like the he dog's was a good dog, them. Yeah. but he was a good dog. Sovereign had blood on his clothes and was arrested. Mm. The sheriff's deputies also found a knife near Sanchez's body, which they believed to be the murder weapon. The three other victims of the attack identified James Jordan as the person who tried to kill them. The Virginia State Police stepped in and closed 16 miles of the trail in order to do a crime scene investigation. They reopened the trail on Sunday, May 12th. So they only closed it for one day? Wow. 16 miles? No, I know. I know. The FBI had has taken over the case since the Appalachian Trail is administered by the National Park Service, so it's federal jurisdiction. James Jordan is in custody. I'm hoping he's getting some psychological help. While he is obviously dangerous and violent, I think it's also clear he has some major delusions and mental yes. illness mm-hmm. going on. I haven't read much about him lately, but I'm keeping my eye out for new development. I don't think he's faking it. I think he's fucked no, up. No, no, he... And he, there's it's something hard to fake it for that at that level, for that. If you listen to that episode, a lot, a lot of the people seem to have mental illness issues. Um, that a lot of the murderers... Um, Probably about half of them were, and I think it's just the kind of thing that, that something about the trail, the same thing that attracts people who aren't mentally ill, the whole idea of it, I think that can be something that's attractive to somebody who is delusional too. I also think too, if you're like a more calculating like serial killer or something like that, the trail isn't anonymous enough or... You know, it's a bad place to do that kind of oh, thing. Yeah. Just because it's a small well, community. People think it's... But, well, yeah. and I'm not saying they don't, but if you're mentally ill, then it has that, what you talked about, that draw. But also, they're not organized enough to think this is not a good place. Yeah, I think maybe we should do more on that later. The Boston Globe this weekend, um, and I haven't had a chance to read it because I was away visiting friends yesterday, had... a. Featured by one of my favorite um, crime reporters on the globe, Evan Allen. Ooh. And I know that they said... Sovereign is from Massachusetts. He had picked up the dog on the trail, and her name was Felicia. But Aww. I don't know if they said what breed, but we'll have to dig Little into that. Dog. Maybe yes, one of us I want to find more. out more about this dog. Okay. It is an intriguing story. We'll so have to do more on it. The next episode we have an update on is episode 43. Okay. Episode 43, we talked about Ashley Willette, who had been killed and left in the middle of Pine Point Road in Scarborough. This actually, this last February February was the 20th anniversary of her being killed and found. And they still have not, nothing more going on on that. On that episode, I also talked about Angel Torres, who disappeared a few months after Ashley's death, May 21st. 2019 marks the 20th anniversary of his of Angel's disappearance. There have been no breaks in all these years, but Lieutenant Mark Holmquist, head of the Maine State Police Southern Division Major Crimes Unit, mm. said in the May 19th Maine Sunday Telegram, "quote We get leads on this qu- case quite frequently. It's one of our more active cases that we have in major crimes." He must mean tips, not leads. I know. 
That's what I say. Lieutenant Jeffrey Love, who heads the Unsolved Homicide Unit. And who lives in my town. Ooh, he does. That was established in 2015, said, quote, These cases are fluid. There could be a lead that comes in tomorrow that will demand more resources, and other times you're just waiting for that phone call. Angel, who was known as Tony to his main friends, was a student at Framingham State College in Massachusetts, which is now a university, but at the time... Was State College. He'd been a good student at Bonnie Eagle High School in Standish, Maine, and then Freiburg Academy. His parents, Narciso and Ramona, lived in Denmark, Maine at the time of Angel's disappearance and still do. Uh, oh, by the way, the reason I do, I'm kind of doing an update on this is because of the article in the paper marking the 20th anniversary. Angel had been up to, to Maine to visit his parents for Mother's Day a couple weeks before he disappeared. But when he took the bus up to Biddeford, Maine on May 19, 1999, he didn't tell them he was in Maine. In retrospect, they didn't see that as odd since he was a grown man. And Biddeford is a ways from Denmark. It's probably an hour. Yeah, Denmark's in uh, western, western Maine yeah. and Oxford County. He had come up to visit friends and sell drugs. It was later found out. His parents' wedding anniversary was May 19th, so he called them to wish them a happy anniversary. He had just moved into a new apartment with his girlfriend, Beth, in an apartment in Barrie, Massachusetts, and their phone was not yet set up. He told his mom he'd call in a few days to give her his new number, and that's how it works with landlords. That was the last time his parents spoke with him. Because 20 years ago, few people had cell phones. Police can't track pings or photos and videos. And there's no social media with people posting photos right. of someone. So it's tough to trace his last hours. All police had was witness testimony, which was spotty, given that he was at parties where people were drunk and fucked up. Angel <laughs> was with his friend, Jason Carney, at a party at a friend's house the night he disappeared. They left the party after midnight, and Jason later showed up, showed back up at the party, disheveled and upset and without Angel. Mm. Jason Carney later told investigators that he and Angel had gone to meet some drug buyers who were not happy about the quality of the drugs they'd been sold. He said he had left Angel at a convenience store at 2 a.m., where Angel was going to catch a ride to either North Conway, New Hampshire, or Denmark, his parents' house. If I recall uh, from the things I've read, Jason Carney's story changed several it times. It did, yeah. And it was very fishy. He was obviously hiding something. Unfortunately, Jason Carney died in 2015 of a drug overdose in Rhode Island. He's probably the only person who could tell police what happened to Angel, besides whoever killed yeah. him. Or he's with Maura Murray and, yeah. and, the, yeah. and, Ayla. and Ayla. They have a family together. Angel's parents, Narcissa and Ramona. a cute family. I know think that the person who killed Ashley Willette had something to do with their son's disappearance. The reason is that shortly after her death, Angel told his parents he knew who killed her. Also, Jason Carney was one of the people that Ashley was with the last night of her life. Mm. But I think that's a red herring. I think Angel probably thought he knew who killed Ashley, as did just about everyone else right. that age in the area did. The cops probably think they know who killed her, too. Yes. And they just can't do anything yes. about it. I don't think that him saying, I know who killed Ashley, necessarily means that that was why he was killed. Right. Which is what his parents think. He could be saying that, whether he knows it or not, and the people who did it could think, you know. It could be, but I don't don't think that's why he's dead. I, I think it's a coincidence, but... I don't have any, yeah. you know. As we discussed in episode 43, the Biddeford-Saco area, is not it's not a huge city. It's and getting bigger. The kids ran in the same circles. Yeah, but this was 20 years yes. ago. 
So it would stand to reason that they had friends and acquaintances in common. Angel probably was killed or died in such a way that someone else was responsible and didn't want anyone to know, obviously. It seems that at this point, the only way police will find out what happened to Angel is if his body is found, or just like I said about Ayla, or someone comes forward with information and it wouldn't be his body, his remains, or somebody comes forward. I think it's going to have to be someone coming forward. Right. Ramona told the Sunday Telegram, quote, somebody's holding it in, and I just wish if they have children now, when they bend down to say goodnight to that child, they think of us. Mm. Lieutenant Love said, quote, as time goes on, dynamics within an individual's life change. Whether it's a separation from a marriage or a breakup, or they themselves get in trouble with the law, and investigators keep their ear on those investigations so that if something does change, they can sit down with these people and revisit a conversation in the past Mm. that could garner more information. Yeah. From 1971 to the present, Maine has 30 open missing persons cases. Since 1968, there are 75 unsolved homicides. There is a $15,000 reward for information that leads to finding Angel's body. About old friends of Angel's, Ramona said, I don't want to feel selfish, but yes, I do see them and think, what would it be like for us if Angel was alive? And about being notorious in the small town of Denmark for the family with a missing son, Ramona said, The only time it bothers me is if people who are very religious say something like, God doesn't give me more than you can handle. I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming, again, he's dead. And mm-hmm. I think his family assumes he's dead. They, I think so, They just yeah. want to find out wh- where right, what, what happened. happened. Which you can't And on. I don't know if you ever will because Jason Carney's dead. Mm-hmm. And if he, if he's if the only he one who killed knows. him. Yeah, and didn't tell anyone. Yeah. Or if something, ha- and it couldn't, it could be just something stupid that, that it, yeah. he didn't kill him, but something caused him to right. die, but we don't know. You never know. Like what if he overdosed and then he's like, right. oh shit, and right. he shoved him in the wa- ocean. I mean, who right. knows? You never know. You that don't knows. know. What's the next one? Episode 44, as I mentioned him earlier, Charlie Cullen. 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 Charlie Cullen. Cullen, the serial killer nurse. Male nurse. Yeah, male nurse. A few months after our February 2018 episode on nurse and serial killer Charles Cullen, who may have killed as many as 400 people in New Jersey and Pennsylvania as hospitals passed him around like a hot potato, Oxygen did a documentary snapped notorious and i don't know if they have a series called snapped or a series called notorious or whatever but anyway snap notorious colon prescription for death about him and it was only a few months after our thing oh they're copying yeah well they had the guy who wrote the book charles graber Mm. that where i used a lot of the information but that book hadn't just come out so again, we have influence, and I ha- but I have not watched the documentary. I'll, I can look for it, I guess, on um, YouTube probably. And I also have a very short update for episode forty-eight. Okay. Jan Soaring, as a German teenager, he was convicted of murdering Derek and Nancy Hasem in Virginia in partnership with their daughter Elizabeth Hasem. That's one of my favorite episodes and we did it after seeing a documentary which is now on Netflix. It's now on Netflix and I highly recommend yeah, it. I might He's watch also it again. become a cause celebre by people like John Grisham and stuff. It's fairly clear even if he had some involvement in this, he didn't get a fair trial. He was sentenced to two life sentences without parole. Elizabeth Hasem, who seems like the more likely person who did it, was convicted of accessory to murder and automatically gets parole in, um, I think, 2023. So he, for the 14th time, applied for parole and was refused it. He will not admit 
his complicity yeah. because he says he didn't do it. And yeah. if you listen to our episode or watch the documentary, it seems like he may not have. And our episode, I'm not saying like it's better than the documentary because the documentary is good, but I did a lot of research for it. And so it has some other stuff and ex- explains some stuff because I think we found some holes. We like the documentary. Yes. Found some holes. He was a German citizen. He was over here. His father was a diplomat. And they have somewhere for him to go in Germany. They have a plan, a parole plan for him in place. He's been in prison for 33 years. He's never gotten into any trouble, but he was denied parole for the 14th time. And also, it was an unfair thing. She was this attractive young woman. He was this dorky, smart-ass German kid. And that plate but you have to listen to the episode. you have to listen but i don't think he had anything to do with it no i don't think so she just used, she used he, him he was a scapegoat yeah and she controlled him and in, she manipulated smart law enforcement yeah. too yeah. yeah although in the pam smart case she got the kids to do it in this case elizabeth just made it look like Jens yeah. did it and he actually admitted doing it because he was under the mistaken impression that as a german citizen he would be deported and have to face justice in germany he was led to believe that by her so that's the update on that okay in episode 54 we talked about albert flick the old guy who stabbed kimberly dobby to death <laughs> death in front of her sons at a laundromat in lewiston maine if you recall albert was on probation and judge robert crowley decided he was too old to be a threat even though flick had killed his wife in the 1970s and had a history of attacking women listen to episode 54 for details if you haven't yet albert flick was scheduled for court may 15th this year 2019 to waive his right to a jury trial as we've discussed before it's our constitutional right to have a, our case heard before a jury of our peers. Damn right. However, sometimes defendants prefer to have a judge decide the case, especially in cases where the crime is something people might react to emotionally. The defense may feel that a judge would focus more on the evidence and the facts of the case and be more objective than a group of regular citizens. So anyway, there have been some questions about Albert's competency. Before this hearing on May 15th, Judge Robert Clifford met with the defendant to see if he understood what what waiving one's right to a jury trial meant. And after speaking to him, the judge decided to reschedule the hearing. So I guess he felt that. Mm-hmm. Maybe Albert didn't quite understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. Defense attorney Alan Lobozo said, after speaking with Justice Clifford, Albert is going to take a little time to think about his options. Mm-hmm. The court postponed the hearing, but a new date has not yet been set. Okay. So we'll keep you updated. Also in episode 54, I did a main mini on Frankie the dog, who had been killed by two douchebags. If you recall from that show, Frankie was a Boston Terrier pugmit whose body washed up on a private beach across the bay from his owner's home in Winter Harbor. He had been killed by two shitheads, shot in the throat and thrown in the water. On May 1st, 2019, the Bangor Daily News reported that Donna Bailey, a Democrat member of the main house representing Sacco, had sponsored a bill that would be called Frankie's Law. And let's just point out that Sacco is nowhere near... Nope, it isn't. Bailey is chair of the House's Judiciary Committee. The law would create a court advocate for victims of animal abuse. It's based on a Connecticut law called Desmond's Law that took effect in 2016. Desmond was a dog that some shithead starved, beat, and strangled to death in 2012. The prosecutor argued for prison time, but the judge sentenced the killer to complete some requirements. The article didn't specify, but I'm assuming some kind of public service, and the charges would be dismissed. Those arguing for LD-1442 Frankie's Law appeared in person or wrote testimony at a hearing before the Judiciary Committee in Augusta at the end of April. Phil Torrey, Frankie's owner, wasn't there. 
But one person who supplied written testimony was University of Connecticut School of Law Professor Jessica Rubin, who helped with the passage of Desmond's Law. She wrote in part, quote, Desmond's Law was created in response to a confluence of factors, Connecticut's historical under-enforcement of anti-cruelty laws, and I'm cutting in here to say that between 2007 and 2017, 80% of animal cruelty cases were dismissed in Connecticut. Mm, And back to what she's saying. So Jessica Rubin, back to her. Recognition of animal sentience, acknowledgement of the link between violence to animals and violence to humans, need to provide law students with experiential learning opportunities, end quote. Like Desmond's Law, Frankie's Law would have judges appoint volunteers volunteer lawyers and law students to be present in court, talk to animal control officers, veterinarians, and police about the crimes against animals and the health of the animals, and to make recommendations to the judge. The bill said the advocates would, quote, represent the interest of justice, end quote, but not the animals themselves. Most people who testified supported the bill, including Bonnie Martinowicz from Maine Friends of Animals, who cited the connection between animal cruelty and domestic violence. Also, a former officer from the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department said that having volunteers would ease the burden of small towns and counties, animal control officers. But the bill had some detractors. The American Kennel Club and the Federation of Maine Dog Clubs are against it, though the article I read in the Bangor Daily News didn't specify the reasons. How can you say that those two organizations are against it and not give someone a call? Not only that, but you can look up their testimony on the legislative website and see what they said against it. I know. I should have looked it up. I, well, no, I'm not saying but you. I'm saying but the, no, person, but the, the journalist quote-unquote who wrote the article. And I think the reason they're against it is because, but maybe they, they're they're thinking that people are going to control how it I could train how my dog. Yeah, yeah. But, it, sure. but the thing is that if somebody makes a complaint against you, you can go to court. I, I know, know it'll cost you money. And you would think people like that would want animals to be protected and particularly the fact that it's a red flag towards bigger crimes i was just watching domestic violence they always they kill someone's cat they kill kill your puppy i was watching on youtube i can't remember i've been watching a lot of true crime stuff these days for a change but the guy every always a nice guy blah 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 and then it comes out later in the show he had strangled the woman who disappeared two Yorkies. Uh, and I'm like, nobody fucking strangles a Yorkie and is A, a nice guy, and B, somebody you don't seriously look at no as a suspect shit. in a disappearance or hurt. Oh my god, how horrible. I know. Anyways. The director of Maine's Animal Welfare Program said volunteers would be unnecessary. Animal control officers trained by his office already act as advocates and are trained in gathering information and evidence and assisting police. About the, quote, interests of justice part of the bill, Liam Hughes said, quote, I'm not sure what that language means. Hmm. But why do they care? They're volunteers. He, what the, what, he's probably afraid of his territory being stepped on or them coming up with different conclusions. The thing is, his people are paid people who have a lot on their plates. These people would just be like CASA volunteers who represent kids in yeah, court. I know. They need a representative in court. Does he want to pay people, his staff, to go to court and testify for I know. this law? Jesus Christ. Um, as for the two shitheads... Nathan Burke, 38, of Hancock, and Justin Chipman, 23, of Steuben, they are both in jail awaiting trial. 
They pled not guilty on May 6th in Hancock Superior Court in Ellsworth. They are charged with one count each of aggravated cruelty to animals, aggravated criminal mischief, burglary, theft by unauthorized taking or transfer, and unauthorized use of property. Info- that information was from uh, the Ellsworth American May 8th mm-hmm. issue. Um, they will be tried separately. If you recall from the story, and if you haven't listened to it, You'll have to listen in episode 54. Nathan Burke sent Phil Torrey, who is Frankie's dad, uh, text messages. Those messages are admissible evidence in Burke's case, but not Chipman's. So the court decided on separate trials. And, of course, they're both going to blame the other. Right, yeah. Um, trial dates have not been set, but we'll keep you updated. That's good. And maybe when you do update on the trials, you can also say if, if anything happened with that bill in the legislature. Yes, I'll keep an eye on it. I get kind of tired of people dismissing, like you were just saying, the, uh, about violence. To, but but even just the it, the fact in itself that you're being violent toward a sentient creature. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. People should be punished for yes, that. Yes, they should be. Or people should be taught that it's wrong. It's right. one thing to, if you have a farm animal, or even in Maine, it's not against the law to shoot your, if dog. you need to do, shoot your dog because he's sick or something. That is a, that's a more humane, you know, way, or, or if you have to slaughter your own animals right. for food. People are humane about that. It's a quick death. Torturing and hurting an animal is different. Anyone that doesn't think that that's something that needs to be taken seriously, I, I, I just know. have to wonder. I know, especially as predictors of, of future violence. Yeah. You know, I it's a cliche to even say it now, but Jeffrey Dahmer. I know. You know, people like that, they started killing animals. And... I think it kind of falls into the category of people who dismiss domestic violence, also dismiss animal cruelty and other things. Um, They just don't think they're that big a deal. So, whatever. And speaking of domestic violence, Ah, episode 55, one of my favorites and one that desperately needs needed an update, Nancy Crampton Brophy. Ooh. When we last visited with Nancy Crampton Brophy... The self-published romance writer turned murder suspect. She was in jail after her arrest in September for the shooting death of her husband, Daniel Brophy, and little was known about the case. I don't know if you remember the affidavit and everything was sealed. Yes. He had been killed June 2nd. She was arrested September 5th last year. The documents in the case have been sealed, as I said, by the judge after her September arrest. First, a quick recap. Daniel Brophy was a chef, and he's described in every article I read, but maybe that's because they're all picking up each other's reporting, (laughs) as popular, favorite. Did he light up a room? Uh, Yeah, he did. I don't think he lit up a room, though. They they really only say that about women. They say that about women, yeah. Yeah, men are are popular and everybody's friend and stuff. He was a chef at the Oregon Culinary Institute in Portland, Oregon, and he was found shot to death on June 2nd of last year. And as I said, in September, his wife, Nancy Crampton Brophy, was arrested and charged with murder in his death. I think the actual charge is something like murder with domestic violence or domestic violence murder, something like that. Last month, as the initial court proceedings got rolling, um, some information came out, and I think you'll find it interesting. I know I did. First, on April 4th, the Oregonian reported that there were some alleged shenanigans involving the gun. Crampton Brophy had told police that she had a 9mm Glock, 
the same model weapon used to kill her husband, and she told them that right after he was killed. But ballistics tests showed that the gun she had isn't the one that fired the bullet that killed Daniel. Hmm. The Oregonian reported, though, on April 4th, some new details, and I just have to read this sentence as an example of something not to write. Okay. Um, details that follow a trail of elliptical clues parceled out in charging documents and court hearings in a case shrouded in mystery after a judge sealed most of the records since Nancy Crampton Brophy's arrest last fall. The latest revelations, if proved to be true, would add a remarkable twist to an alleged murder where even a possible motive have not, has not been made public. Was that all one sentence? It's two sentences, but, um, yeah. the second sentence started at, um, the latest revelations. Oh. I just had to read that because I, it just struck me as astoundingly poorly written. In any case, the Oregonian reported that the prosecutor said during a court hearing in March that the gun, and it, they reported it on April 4th, that the gun police found was the exact making caliber, as we said, that killed Daniel Brophy, 63 at the time. I don't think I said that earlier. But ballistics testing couldn't tie the weapon to the murder. He added, though, that Nancy Crampton Brophy had brought additional gun parts online sometime before her husband was shot. Uh-huh. She's a clever one. Someone familiar with the evidence, he didn't elaborate at the court hearing, but someone familiar with the evidence told the Oregonian that investigators believe Crampton Brophy took the slide and barrel from another gun and put those pieces in the 9 millimeter she owned. Then she removed the pieces after the shooting, got rid of them, and put the original slide and barrel back in. Oh. So, that's clever. She probably, yeah. She probably and, read it in the book. And I'm wondering if, I'm thinking I wouldn't that, know how to do that. I, and, well, I'm wondering if y- you could do the opposite, too. Take the slide and barrel of a gun that was used to kill somebody Ooh. and put it in someone else's gun. Ooh, do I sense a future plot, plot twist. <laughs> Might be a twist in the book I'm writing. I'll let the Oregonian take it from here. Crampton Brophy's public defender, Kathleen Dunn, asked the judge during the March 22nd hearing to close an upcoming bail hearing, this was going to be in April, to the public and press, and also moved to exclude certain evidence from being presented by the prosecution. The hearing this happened at wasn't scheduled and didn't appear on the case docket in Multnomah County Circuit Court, so there was no press there, but the Oregonian and Oregon Live obtained an audio recording, good for them, of the hearing through a public records request. And the judge ruled against the motions to close the bail hearing that was scheduled for April 19th or or the motions to exclude evidence at it. The defense also wanted that evidence excluded, citing the judge cited he had neither the statutory nor constitutional authority to do so. The widespread publicity is why Crampton Brophy's lawyers say they were determined to keep the details surrounding her case confidential until trial. Quote, from the moment of Ms. Brophy's arrest, this matter has generated intense media attention. Court proceeding in this case will trigger worldwide media coverage with stories on television and the Internet. Well, there's kind of an irony to that that I'll mention later. With stories on television and the Internet, as well as in newspapers and magazines, done, her attorney wrote, in court filings in early April. This case cannot proceed without the world and the likely jury pool absorbing the coverage. Now let's go to the April 19th bail hearing, which wasn't close to the public. Oddly, despite the fears that it would just spread like wildfire throughout the world press, <laughs> I can't find an Oregonian story. The Portland Mercury reported on it. I'm not sure that they were there, and I think they're an alternative newspaper. And then another website called Eater Portland picked it up 
And they both reported, but instead of going from the reporting, Eater Portland was nice enough to put the affidavit online. Mm. And the bail hearing was based on the affidavit. And as you listeners know, an affidavit is, in this case, it's the probable cause to support why they arrested her. It was filed September 6th when she was arrested by Sean Overstreet, the deputy DA. And it's only one page long. So I'm just going to read from the affidavit. Okay. And I'll try to, I'll skip, if I skip stuff, it's just like the blah, blah, cop talk stuff. Um, but the important stuff will be here. So on June 2nd, and I'm paraphrasing some of it, on June 2nd, 2018, Daniel Brophy left his home and arrived at his workplace, the Oregon Culinary Institute, at um, 1701 Southwest Jefferson Street in Portland, Oregon. He disarmed the alarm for the building at 7.21 a.m. He was the only person in the building. At 7.08 a.m., Nancy Brophy, Daniel's wife, is seen on surveillance video driving her Toyota minivan westbound. And if you're driving, you're either driving west or you're westbound. You don't need two verbs in one sentence. On Jefferson Street, directly in front of the OCI, the Culinary Institute building, she's seen again leaving the area of the Culinary Institute, again going west. On Jefferson Street at 7.28 a.m. Dan- and, and he, remember, he disarmed he, it at 7.21. Yes. Daniel's co-worker arrived at 7.30, but did not discover Daniel's body until she allowed students to enter the building around ah. 8 a.m. Dan- Can you imagine being here like this? He, he I know that there. you were there with it for half an hour. Daniel's body was located in the rear kitchen by students as they entered the building. He had been shot twice, once in the back and once in the chest. The medical examiner concluded that both bullets could have been the one that killed him as both pierced his heart. Mm. Detectives conducted a thorough search of the OCI, the Culinary Institute, and determined there were no signs of force or struggle. There were also no signs of motive regarding robbery, assault, or other crime. Daniel was still in possession of his wallet. Nothing was missing. His cell phone, eyeglasses, and car keys. His vehicle was in front of the building and also had not been disturbed. Nancy Brophy arrived at the Culinary Institute driving the same Toyota minivan seen in the surveillance video shortly after detectives arrived. Nancy said that she had been at home that morning and had not left until called about an incident at the Culinary Institute. She gave a timeline of when Daniel had left the house but claimed she remained at home. Mm. Nancy claimed that Daniel did not have any enemies and could not think of anyone who would want to hurt him. Except for her. (laughs) When asked if Daniel might bring a gun to work to protect himself, Nancy stated, I hate that, that she had recently purchased a Glock 9mm handgun, but neither her or Daniel had used it. And then, this is Sean Overstreet, the um, DDA writing, I know that Leland Samuelson at the Oregon State Crime Lab has analyzed the bullets recovered from Daniel's body and the shell casings that were found on the scene and determined that they were most likely shot from a Glock 9mm firearm. Nancy allowed detectives to go to her home and retrieve her firearm, and Leland Samuelson was able to determine that the firearm Nancy relinquished is not likely the firearm that shot and killed Daniel. Now, remember, this was written on September 6th. So, On or about June 5th, three days after the murder, Nancy called lead detective Darren Posey and requested a letter stating that she was not a suspect in Daniel's homicide so that she could provide it to a life insurance (laughs) company. Shades of Ian Stewart. Nancy stated that she had a policy for Daniel valued at $40,000. Detectives declined to furnish the letter and later learned from several insurance carriers that Nancy is the beneficiary on several policies 
valued at over three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Hmm. So not the forty grand she told the detective Posey. Detectives also learned that Nancy had worked in the insurance industry, as did we when we did our report. That's right. And has actually sold life insurance policies in the past. Mm. During a search of Daniel's phone, this guy's comma challenge, detectives discovered that Daniel and Nancy had a joint iTunes account. And detectives know that web pages that are bookmarked by one account holder are accessible by another account holder. Detectives discovered a bookmark article. So this is Daniel's phone they're looking at, but it's a shared account. Discovered a bookmark article on a joint iTunes account titled 10 Ways to Cover Up a Murder. <laughs> um, Nancy Brophy was arrested on September 5th. And as she was being arrested, she asked, you're arresting me? Then added, you must think I murdered my husband. No shit, Nancy. Nancy never offered any explanation as to why she lied about her whereabouts on the morning that Daniel was killed, nor did she explain why she was circling the OCI building at the time Daniel was killed. Nancy also never explained why she lied about how much life insurance money is available to her. So that's the affidavit. Hmm. And as you remember, Nancy not only was a self-published romance writer, but had blogged in 2011, How to Murder Your Husband. Mm -hmm. We think it was supposed to be kind of a funny... Tongue-in-cheek. Tongue-in-cheek, but it was poorly written enough that it wasn't very funny. Yeah, it wasn't. It was Um, weird. You should go back at that episode 55 and listen if you haven't. It took a lot of information gathering to put that together because people were just, like, repeating. Yes. And, again, though they, they keep talking about the worldwide attention it's gotten, it's hard to find unique information. And a lot of it is just repeated yes. information. I don't know if the Oregonian was at the April 19th hearing I couldn't find it on their website. I couldn't find it online. So it's kind of ironic that the the big newspaper in that city didn't cover that hearing. I know. Uh, an alternative newspaper covered it, and then an alternative website a week later picked it up and provided the F. David, and that's how I got the F. David. And I'm not saying the Oregonian didn't, but I couldn't find it. And all I could find about that April 19th hearing where the affidavit was released was repeats of the, the Portland Mercury's story you know other media did pick it up but they're just picking up the same story no it's just regurgitated and i did read somewhere that daniel brophy's son who has a different last name i think has filed a wrongful death suit it seems a little premature since her criminal suit is underway and the lawyers decided to let the criminal suit go on and then do the wrongful death suit. I assume if she's convicted of murder, I guess you still could sue somebody for wrongful death just to get the money. Yes. But she's not getting any money, so I would think his family would get any money he had anyway. But I don't know. It, it's not clear if there's a trial date yet. I'll hmm. keep you posted. And the other thing is, I thought it was odd that that affidavit was sealed from September to April. I don't see anything in that information that's not usually released. I know, it's weird. When you, unless there was, some, unless they wanted to look into the insurance or something. But usually, I mean, that information, like, about her going to the scene, um, and the stuff about the gun parts wasn't even in that. I know, that is weird. So I'm not sure why it was sealed. It would be nice if one of the, those intrepid reporters in Oregon would find out. So that's well, my update. Thank you. I'll look forward to hearing what happens with her. Yeah. Okay, and I have one more. Ooh. And this is actually an update to a main mini. It's the case of Stephen Downs, the Auburn main man who's charged with killing Sophie Sergi in 1993 in Fairbanks, Alaska at their college, the University of Alaska Fairbanks. 
And Stephen Downs has agreed to be returned to Alaska to face um, charges. He's waived extradition. There was some long... He was arrested in February, and there was some long... Took forever. Forever, and it was... The warrant wasn't getting here, and then he was going to fight extradition for whatever reason. And Governor Janet Mills, who used to be the Attorney General here in Maine, in April signed the warrant for his extradition. And that was in April, and then there was an extradition hearing... Earlier this month, and he it said in the th- articles he was expected to leave within the next 10 days. I think it was about a week ago that was. Yeah. I'm sorry I didn't write down the date. Downs has been held at the Androscoggin County Jail in Auburn, Maine, since his arrest in February. The case went unsolved for years until they used that same DNA that they use, a DNA process that they used to track down the Golden, the yeah. alleged Golden State killer member. to lead to him. He denies he had anything to do with it. He's a registered nurse, not unlike Charlie Callahan, I guess, or nurse certificate or record or whatever, does have disciplinary things, yes. nothing arising to murder, um, obviously, <laughs> or we know about not. And then again, he could have just gone to another hospital like Charlie Right, King. and... If you want to know more about the case, you can listen to episode 64, where we did a main mini about him. And that may have been an update to an earlier thing about him. I'm not sure now, because I know that I had one about his extradition. But in any case, that's what's going on with him. I intended at some point to do a full-blown episode, and I may well still when more information comes out. Yeah, it's hard when it's... it's and it's still ongoing because it's going to have to go to trial yes. and maybe more information will come out. Yes. Because, yes, he allegedly did it. We don't know. But we'll find out. It's, it'll be interesting to find out exactly DNA, what they have. Right. And DNA, the DNA evidence is hard to dispute yeah. when it's from sperm and it's on her body. All I can say is other, any other reason that his DNA would be on her is pretty friggin' bad anyway. Mm-hmm. He either took part in it. Right. Came upon her dead body and right. jerked which off is, on it. Which, well, that one that, like, I think we but talked about But he's not it. saying he did that. No. So. But that what that's what that one was right. that um, Joe McGinnis wrote. Was it Joe McGinnis? Or Joseph Wamba? Who wrote that one, uh, Blood? Um, oh, yeah. The one about the first DNA case in England? Joseph Wamba. Yeah. Blood Joseph something. Wamba. Bloodletting or blood. No, it was blood... Blood something. That guy actually hadn't killed the girl. He just right jerked off on her, right. which is pretty gross. Yeah. But in any case, so. it'll be... And, and also, one other point, and again, he's just charged with the crime. I find the um, defense that you hear a lot in things like this, the guy has no history of violence, to be... Um, not really, That's not really relevant. Relevant. First of all, it's it no reported. Mean, it doesn't mean, yeah, it's anything. no reported history yeah. of violence. There's no real record, and that's my. And usually, I'm on the side. You know, I believe it or not, from a lot of the episodes we do, I'm more on the side of somebody getting a good defense. And you know, it's up to the prosecution to prove somebody's yes. guilty, and it's up to them to make the case. And the defense people can say what they want. And if the case is good enough, it doesn't matter what you say. The evidence is there. But 
there are very few people where there's some record somewhere, some official record of how this man treats women. Yeah, I know. It, there may be anecdotal information like Harvey Weinstein and Ugh. that type of thing. But as I can tell you, I've, I've worked with people. It, there were people that when another woman came to work at the office, women would bring them into the bathroom and say, stay away from so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's no record of that. Yes. You know, so people can treat women a certain way. That guy that I was watching the YouTube thing who strangled the Yorkies, there's no record, official record of him strangling the Yorkies. His girlfriend's family said, oh, yeah, by the way, he strangled her Yorkies. You know, so I don't know if they said it that way, (laughs) but it kind of came out kind of like that. but But so the thing is, somebody not having a record of, like, murdering or even beating people as we know, both of us have found when you're when we're researching things that people will say things that aren't necessarily true. Like, oh, I had a pretty happy childhood, and then they start telling you, oh, but oh yeah, I was molested when I was eight, and then blah 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 right. happened, and blah blah blah. And it's like, well, right? Okay, so what you say and what actually happened are two, two different, different things. things, and it's not that you're being dishonest; it's that you are. It's there's a public perception, and you also are just not. You're right. You're not telling yourself. Yeah the correct narrative and the women will you know people family members will say a certain guy is is or you know he he he's a nice guy and then you find out like you said that's true or there's a lot of things they talk to ex-girlfriends i mean a lot of how many cases have we done where you know former wives and girlfriends there's there's shit going on it turns out everybody say no he's a nice guy blah 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 and then it turns out he does have a history of violence it's just not a well if you don't report it yeah And there's a reason people don't report that shit. And maybe this has nothing to do with it, but I think it would be pretty hard to do a lot of stuff when you're as large as he is. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds stupid, but he is is hugely obese. I mean, that, I think that makes a difference. Yes. But he did have some incidences where female employees complained about him, and I don't know what that means. And my feeling is... But a lot of times when you're a woman, you don't even complain about Right, I was just going to say, complaints like that are about mice. You know how they say if you see one mouse in the house, you have a thousand? For somebody to go and complain about somebody, it means that person has done multiple, multiple, or said multiple things to multiple people, and somebody finally said, okay, I'm going to be the one to stick my neck out, even though I know all it's going to get me is shit. Yeah. By the time somebody gets complained about, there are, like you were just saying, there is so, it's not just not worth it. Or you complain, but the person you complain to never brings it any farther. He, the the times that he was, the times that I read about the paper, some action was taken. By the time action's taken, it's gotten to the point where it's pretty bad because people get away with shit all the time at work. Oh, yeah. You know. It'll get in the bus. But in any case, um, and also we, before we go today, we wanted to talk a little bit about with summer coming up and us being busy and us also wanting to get our groovy tube, which has been on hiatus for almost two years. And we just had no? to renew the website again. Yes. That at least for the summer, what we're going to do is alternate crime and stuff with groovy tube, yes. which if you haven't listened to groovy tube, you may enjoy. And hopefully that'll help us get back on track. We wanted to get Groovy Tube back going again. We didn't want to end crime and stuff, but we're both incredibly 
busy. Yeah, I just switched jobs, and, and I have another job. And kind of. my my Momo has issues are well documented. <laughs> but we it. are going to have for our Patreon supporters because we feel bad with our monthly newsletter. We'll put some special content that will have a little extra because we know that you donated to us with the expectation of something. And we don't want to just pull the rug out. Those donations do also help GroovyTube, though, too. And yes. um, we know that there are people who have been asking us. And there us, are people who are patrons from GroovyTube. Yeah. Right. There's, uh, yeah, there are patrons who want GroovyTube back, too. So we're trying to please you all and please ourselves because we like doing we this. We enjoy it. We don't I miss just, doing it. Yeah. So well, I miss, and we do like doing this. And believe me, if we had the time this is what we would choose to do it, we would we do like it, this it's we enjoy doing it and and i'm really busy but i'm like i don't want to get rid of the one of the things i enjoy I know, doing i know so That's all i have are the are. things i don't enjoy doing i'm not even working on my book right now which i should be and today we don't have any um recommendations no um but we will be back and until then enjoy thank this you, and everybody crime and stuff online.com you can find everything you need to know thank you bye thanks for listening bye-bye You put the food and she's just like, yeah, I don't want that. She wants, because she smells the turkey cooking. She's like, I know there's better shit in here, Molly. And you know what? You need to go outside and go to the bathroom. She's like, what's going on? She loves, I got a wire brush to comb her with. She loves it. Good girl. I hate it when they put the dog's Sorry. name in quotes. It's like, it's the dog's name. No shit. It's not a fake name. It's the doggy's name.